Welcome to Jason the Movie Knots. I am Jason Sachs. I'm Eric Hoffman. We are starting a look, or maybe we're just dipping our toe into the world of Seijin Suzuki, the great Japanese director, in which they were talking about Branded to Kill and Tokyo Drifter. Actually, I was wondering this, Eric. Is he a great Japanese director? Is he a great director? Or is he a Japanese director? In other words, is he great? Or is he just very, very, very interesting? I haven't honestly not seen enough of his work to properly estimate him. Uh, on the basis of what I have seen, I would say that, and, and knowing uh, the restrictions under which he worked, I would I would estimate him as a great filmmaker, Japanese or not. He's cert he's certainly put it this way. He he's certainly innovative. He's he's not he's not terribly consistent, but he's always if he even if he's inconsistent, he's brilliantly inconsistent. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> Fascinating man in terms of career, in terms of life, in yeah. terms of what he went through. Uh, we're going to spoil his movies and his career here. So Eric and I were talking offline about how um, I love being surprised. And if you want to be surprised by movies that are thoroughly surprising, uh, come back. Come back after watching them. So all that said, um, so obviously, if you know any of the, you you do do you want me to talk about Suzuki's story? Do you want to talk about Suzuki's story first of all? Go because I think it. it leads into the power of why these movies are so interesting. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. go for it. So unlike most people who ended up getting a career in film, uh, Seijun Suzuki was not interested in movies, particularly as a kid. He attended movies, it seemed, but he essentially drifted into them as a career when he got out of the military in the late 1940s. Just, there just happened to be work available in that field, and he chose to move into that field. Uh, before that, among many, many other things, he served in the Japanese Navy and was on ships that were sunk and uh, was a communications officer. Appears to have, a very, have had a very interesting life. But then he went uh, post-war, first went to work for, as the assistant director to Ozu, the great Ozu. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can't imagine two more different directors than the mattered, genteel Ozu and the wild, uh, innovative Suzuki. Ozu is so specific and detailed and, and uh, Suzuki feels so seat of the pants and it's a thrill watching. Uh, so he he's, he served as an understudy for Ozu, or assistant director to Ozu, and then uh, in 1954, when uh, when his, the studio, I just lost the name of the studio. Oh, the one that fired him. The, the one, that, yeah, Nikatsu? the one that Nikatsu. Yeah. Nikatsu. Yeah. So um, Nikatsu Studios was a pre-war studio. Japan had closed it down for propaganda reasons. Uh, when the war happened, they opened it back up in 1954, and a whole slew of people moved over to that studio to produce movies. At that time, they were producing two movies a week, 52 movies per year. 
they would play as a double feature and people will go out to see them at the movie theater. Just like you might sit and watch a double feature on Netflix some night or binge your favorite TV show. People in Japan would go out every week to see a movie. So their schedule was relentless, absolutely relentless. And uh, I guess the best comparison in the U.S. would be like Roger Corman. Yeah, or just like Times Square movie theaters, right? With uh, this kind of like uh, low-budget filmmakers who are just churning this stuff out. And as usually happens with, with these folks... Is Corman, I'll keep I'll keep going with Corman because Corman yeah. had a, a whole slew of people work who worked for him over the years who no one remembers their names except the biggest cultists. But they also had great directors like Jonathan Demi and Martin Scorsese who made movies for him, and uh, they ended up really th- showing their own specific spark of genius, and were able to produce these these uh, throughout their career able to produce these amazing films. Um, in that vein, Suzuki really stood out from his peers, and as he delivered movie after movie i think there's some statistics 20 to 30 movies he worked on for that studio uh he started developing a a very specific unique style which is uh full of quick scenes a lot of flash not necessarily tightly designed plot lines um he'd often get a script just a few weeks before the the movie needed to be filmed and then be given what was the day 16 days to film a movie or something like that yeah just about three weeks something like that and then literally a day to cut it and get it ready for release yeah just imagine you know if there's a movie that's due january 1st he was he was filming it on december 1st and was working on production on it on like december 28th or something in order for it to get released and because of that because he's moving so quickly and because he was in it it's still inside the Japanese system, he started to develop friction against the executive producers and the owners of the studio, where Suzuki's movies were drifting more and more away from conventional plot lines. They just touch on conventional plot lines. They seem to be postmodern constructions on top of plot lines to a point where by the time he created uh, Branded to Kill, he was legitimately like, disliked by the studio now brand to kill as we'll get to is a pretty strange film a very kind of deconstructive film i guess is a good way of thinking of it uh and uh didn't make very much money and subsequently appears to be in kind of a fit of anger as the studio was already experiencing financial troubles uh suzuki was fired from the studio and eventually sued to get uh to get a compensation for it. And he did. Uh, he only produced one movie in the 1970s, although he worked for Japanese TV during that time, and then came back in the 80s and 90s producing some really interesting avant-garde material, which I haven't watched any of, but it looks looks um, really quite different. Um, so we're here to talk about Branded to Kill and Tokyo Drifter, which I'd say are more or less considered to be two of his masterpieces. And leaving aside masterpiece and genius and deconstructed mm-hmm. and all these words that we'll probably throw around. I'm not sure genius is the word, actually. Uh, these are just fun-ass movies. It's just a great yeah. time. Just super fun. Like, sometimes you, you see a, a film on Criterion Channel or somewhere in eight and a half or something, and you're like, I'm going to have a life-changing experience. Other times you'll see a great movie, and you just have a great time watching a great movie. 
And these are great time movies. I would say that I, I would say that Branded to Kill, maybe Tokyo Drifter were life changing for some young filmmakers. I, I would say uh, you know, Jim Jarmusch's of the world, the Quentin Tarantino's of the world, they saw these movies. And much like their sort of spiritual brethren from American cinema that they hold in such high esteem from this roughly the same period, second half of the double features, B movies, drive-in cinemas, uh, these low-budget uh, films that were just kind of like churned out uh, by these studios uh, to make a quick buck, essentially, um, ended up producing some some real gems, some real unexpected highlights of cinema. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the restrictions, the budgetary restrictions that these filmmakers were under, but at the same time, the freedom that they were given because there was so little at stake, they were kind of given, you know, uh, free reign to do whatever it is that they pleased. It didn't always sit well with the studios as we see with Nakatsu where they fired him. Uh, Suzuki for uh, turning in Branded Kill, which is almost like an anti-film in a lot of ways. Um, the way that it is structured is uh, you could say it's three acts. I would say it's three movies for the price of one. <laughs> uh, you know, you have this first portion of the film, which is kind of like this uh, Yakuza uh, car chase Man. kind of getaway shootout yeah. uh, thing. And then you have the second half of the film, which is kind of like uh, Yakuza for Hire and mm -hmm. the Femme Fatale, who's, you know, possibly up to no good. And then you have the third portion of the film, which is kind of like a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like an anti-buddy film, uh, you know, the where the number one Yakuza and the number three Yakuza are essentially uh, uh, conjoined at the hip and uh trying not to kill one another or stay one step ahead ahead of each other it's almost like a real black comedy in a lot of ways um it has uh there's a i keep using the word i probably use the word irreverence too much but uh it and deconstruction gets thrown around a lot it's certainly self-conscious of its status as a yakuza film it's definitely playing with yakuza film conventions in some really interesting ways it's taking the Yakuza film Bibles, essentially ripping it up, pasting it back together in some kind of like Burroughs cut up avant-garde way. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe it. It's a very interesting cinema going experience. And a lot of the fun of it, you, you, you spoke about the fun watching these movies, is that you, you never really know where it's going. Uh, it, 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 you think it's going in one way and then it does a 180 degree turn and then you think, okay, now we're going in this direction. And then it does another 180 degree turn and then you're off in another direction. And, yeah. uh, you almost get whiplash from this movie. Um, and it's funny. I mean, it, it doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, Joe Shishido, who's the, main uh character in this film who uh is a kind of like a um a japanese cinema geez what would be the american uh equivalent of joe shishido 
Charles Bronson? Yeah, like a Charles Bronson type. Yeah, good, good comparison. Excellent. Uh, of course, he had the facial implants. Uh, they call him yes. Joe, Joe the Chipmunk Shishido. Chipmunk cheeks, so <laughs> yeah, funny looking. Very set him apart. I mean, and you know, it was a gamble on his part, but I, I'd say it paid off. Uh, he was instantly recognizable because of those implants, but uh, uh, he appeared in a number of Suzuki films. I haven't seen them all, um, but this is probably his most memorable turn. He's very young in this film. Uh, I know I've seen a lot of, uh, I don't know, like Japanese TV productions from the 1970s, a lot of those science fiction Japanese TV shows where he's made appearances. So it was kind of interesting seeing him as a young man in this picture. And um, uh, he's uh, he's a very uh, kind of like very cool, you know, uh, guy in this movie. You know, he's kind of he's got that kind of swagger, that kind of vibe about him um, as this. the term I was going to use for both these films in general. They're very yeah. cool movies in that Ooh. in that very specific kind of cool jazz sort of way in a way they have this kind of improvisational feel to them which is actually pretty a pretty close reflection to the way they were produced uh that you know because there was a great deal of improvisation in terms of the scripts being rewritten and rewritten the night before and suzuki literally devoting his life during filming to revising them and making improvements to them and they're they're self-contradictory but oftentimes but there it doesn't matter it doesn't yeah. matter because it's the it's the mood the attitude that's so important yeah that's what it is it's also and i don't know if this was a benefit and, and at first i thought it was a uh, detraction and i think i said the first uh text that i sent you about this movie while i was watching it was branded to kill is a mess <laughs> yeah. and that's and what I it thought... seems like and I thought, uh, yeah, Eric, you got the point. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. It's supposed to be. <laughs> um, very intentionally, uh, not only throwing out the rule book for the Yakuza film, but I would say throwing out the rule book for film in general. Uh, there's a lot of very uh, a bizarre editing in the film. There's, uh, It's almost like avant-garde level editing. Um, there's a lot of disconnected you know, jump cuts and uh, things that don't quite align. Uh, And at first you think this is just poorly made, but then you realize that it's probably intentional uh, to offset the viewer and to take you out of that kind of comfortable space that you're in normally when you're watching a film where, um, where the editing and, and everything more or less congrues. Uh, maybe not so much in an ineptly made film, but this is not an ineptly made film. It, it's an, an adeptly made film that has the appearance of ineptness, but it's like intentional. I like the commentary <laughs> that says essentially, uh, he, you've seen so many of these movies before you don't need all those scenes you don't need all those extra scenes to explain everything we right. all get what's happening here and right. the audience that was watching these movies would would expect certain beats and they don't need the filler 
It, it's it's no filler, all killer, literally. <laughs> right. You know, you expect the ass- assassination scene. You expect the betrayal by the woman. You expect some sort of buddy moment. You expect uh, a grand grandiose conclusion, and we get all of those. And it's like we don't need we don't necessarily need all the connecting tissue. I think you can go back and kind of put the pieces together a bit. Right. I'm not sure all the puzzle pieces perfectly connect, but it's close enough to make it exactly what you want out of a movie like this. And I would say also, you know, the fact it is kind of got that, I'll, I'll continue the words, don't use the word deconstructed, uh, mm-hmm. because it has that deconstructive vibe to it. Uh, it feels a little more modern than a lot of classical films from that era. It's also kind of resolutely, you know, it, it it's funny that he worked for Ozu because it's so resolutely anti-Ozu. For that matter, it's very anti-Kurosawa as well. Kurosawa, after all, had this perfectly designed films that moved forward at more or less a stately pace, right? Um, uh, Tokyo Drifter, at, or excuse me, uh, yeah, Tokyo Drifter at the beginning has a few scenes that, um, actually, Echo Kurosawa's high and low, and then it goes a completely different direction. Right. Yeah, it's... <clears throat> I think it was... Did I read this right? That uh, the film was edited in, in a 24-hour period? Right. Yeah, it was. And then they completed the, the editing the day before it was released. <laughs> you imagine? So they were I mean, cutting film like of, all yeah. night long. Yeah, I can just like, see them in the room, you know, like smoking cigarettes, you know, and it's just like completely, you know, smoke filled room. And they're, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning and they're, they can barely see because their smoke is in their eyes and they've probably been <laughs> up for 48 hours, you know. Uh, and, it, and in a way, it kind of like, it comes across, you know, you, you it it has that kind of like vibe of like a midnight film. Um, you know, just it has this kind of uh, energy to it, it but at the same time, it's a, a, and there's a, a kind of obliqueness to it as well, you know. Um, it it's it's interesting it's it's like a fever dream in a lot of ways and you know i was watching his later films which uh are called the taisho trilogy unofficially uh which he made in the late 70s and early 80s or, well late 70s early 80s and late 80s there's three of of these films and they're intentionally kind of like art films but I noticed that the way that those. yeah, I noticed that the way in in much the same way as he's removed the connective tissue of the Yakuza film, in those films he's kind of like removed the tissue, the connective tissue of the art film. And there's there's the same kind of energy in those films as there is in, say, Branded the Kill. Uh, which is it's like you're watching the film and it's like 
at times you're not even sure what it is that you're watching or where this is going or you know you're the the whole footing you know the handheld uh the handholds and footholds have been removed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so you're sort of you know left to drift and uh uh catch whatever handholds and footholds you can uh, as you progress throughout the film and, and assemble the film in your mind um, that it is that you think you should be seeing. You know, it's almost like Suzuki is giving you the pieces of the puzzle and letting you put it together as the viewer. It's a, it's a very interesting technique. Uh, and it, it's something that in the hands of a less, less gifted director, I think would be, uh, just catastrophic instead of being totally engrossing. I was going to say, that sounds like totally the kind of thing you would enjoy. Knowing <laughs> your taste in movies. Yeah. So, so it's kind of interesting to see that connection, you know, because, you know, he made these Taisho films a decade or more after he made Branded to Kill, but uh, it you you do kind of see that same visionary impulse at work in in his earlier films as in his later films. He's just a real iconoclast, is what it seems like. That's what it boils down to, I think. Yeah, which is guy who always believed in doing things his own way. Right. Uh, I mean, here you, you have a film. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You know, who it makes me think of actually is someone you and I have, have worked on. He's a bit like Steve Gerber in that he was kind of uncompromising and had to go where he was able to go and got caught up in a pretty costly lawsuit at a really crucial time in his career. That's true. Yeah. And you could say his creative growth was, in both cases, their creative growth was perhaps stunted or was forced to go in a different direction because of the consequences of the lawsuit. Right. And they were both working in mediums, Gerber and the comic books, which were in kind of a cultural ghetto and Suzuki working in right. these genre films or pink films, you know, where a lot of critics just overlooked them. They didn't consider them to be uh, worthy of, of serious critical attention. Uh, when they absolutely were. I mean, you look at a Gerber comic book and it's like, you know, a masterpiece of narrative art, you know, uh, with which in, within the uh, 21 to 23 page four color comic. Mm -hmm. uh, and the same goes for a Suzuki film, which is, you know, something that played as a second billing. And, uh, you know, by that time, most the audience had either left or fallen asleep. <laughs> they just wanted to have something to keep him occupied and excited and interesting. Right. You know, if you're coming out with something, you're not going to come out with, uh, get people interested in John Dealman type movies. You need to uh, right. deliver something to keep people, keep people on the edge of their seats. Well, and, and, you know, what better way to keep people on the edge of the seats than have a main character who gets, uh, sexually aroused by smelling uh, <laughs> boiling rice. <laughs> oh wow! And I love so that quote. Much. Oh my god! Somebody, gosh. somebody gave him a hard time about it, and he said, "Well, 
if he were Italian, he'd be turned on by sniffing macaroni, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, you're missing the point. <laughs> it is so strange, this movie. Well, both these movies, yeah. but they're so awesome for that strangeness. They're so right. completely entertaining because they're so strange. I mean, they're, they're not avant-garde like you're talking about with his later films because re-watching Tokyo Drifter today after watching it for just about last week, I just end up just getting pulled along by the ride and loving so much of it. Like this, the shootout on the, on the docks, for example, where there's all this work around how he's hiding under the car and next to the car and cars are coming to get him on the dock and shooting snipers from off the, off the uh, tower on the dock. And it's like, it's just such an well, well filmed sequence. It doesn't necessarily connect at all with anything else, but it doesn't matter really doesn't matter because it's just really tremendously well done and if you sit there for a minute you say well why does his shots always hit no one else's shots actually connect that doesn't make any sense but that doesn't matter either it's all about the energy and the moment and the just the 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 fun of it the way it transports you into this different fictional world and he, he handles that so well yeah, I mean, you say that there's not – I would disagree. I, I think there are some, like, art film touches in Branded to Kill and Tokyo Drifter. Not just not just visually. I mean, there's there's an obvious kind of, like, Brechtian overtone um, to the overt theatricality of both of these films, particularly Tokyo Drifter, which is in color, and Branded to Kill, which is not. So Tokyo Drifter plays a lot with with color, you know these these shootout scenes where suddenly the 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 uh, the lighting changes from a, a verdant green to a a, a um, brilliant yellow or white at the end of the film, particularly, uh, or you, the picture that you have up behind you of that that wonderful uh, violet color that the characters are based in. Um, so there's there's some there's some very self-conscious theatricality to these films but that's that's in line maybe that's not so much um avant-garde in japanese cinema because again these were films that were directed toward mass audiences they weren't directed these were playing in art cinemas you know these were playing in just regular run-of-the-mill theaters and Audiences were very receptive uh, to these sorts of things to a certain degree. Um, oh, heck yeah, right? Why wouldn't no. you be? Yeah, they Why had fun. Be? Yeah. When the lead character in uh, Tokyo Drifter is wandering through the snow after being attacked at the railroad station, and you're just like, the beauty of him walking through the snow as this individual person uh, on this perfectly uh, trod path through the snow down to the station or whatever is like just such a beautifully it looks so beautiful and it's yeah. such a great storytelling device and says so much in a single sure, image how about, how about the beginning of tokyo drifter with that film stock that he's using that black and white film stock and i'm not sure exactly what it is that there's a filter on the lens or whatever but it almost reminded me actually a bit of say the beginning of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with that patina that George Roy Hill uses. Oh, and by the way, might I add, 
we never discussed whether or not George Ray Hill was an auteur. And I will say, uh, <laughs> I'll just interject because I don't want to leave that alone. He was not. He wasn't an auteur because he didn't originate any of the films in which he took part, except for one, Great Waldo Pepper, which is best, which was his best film. Which was his best film. Suzuki, would you say, meets the criteria? And we can just sidebar this for the moment, but would you say that given that criteria that I've just laid out, which is that the that there is a generative impulse from one individual whether they direct the film write it produce it or both or neither or all or edit it um that that meets the criteria of the auteur and then of course there's stylistic consistencies maybe uh more or less but that there is one individual who becomes that generative person and then also the person that sees the film through from f fruition from from its initial uh from its instigation to its fruition would you would you say that that's the definition of the auteur i don't think that i don't think they're always the person who takes it from initiation it could be the person who picks up a, a story and kind of helps to shape it and then delivers it i think he's absolutely an auteur because Susie. he Suzuki is, yes. Yeah. Because he took the scripts that were given to him and he would stay up all night revising the scripts. And he right. would work incredibly hard to create the visuals and the the story elements that he thought were the best fits for the story, and then collaborate with his staff to really deliver something that fit the larger vision of what they were trying to do. So he he allowed improvisation, but That's correct. ultimately right. these are truly his works you truly yeah. have his fingerprints all over them but making but making the space so i so i look at you know like a, a filmmaker like mike lee uh who is notorious for allowing for improvisation and who who brings his actors and actually involves his actors in the formation of of the film you know the writing of the script uh the the way the the film is shot you know the the blocking and editing and everything like the actors it's a real it's a real um it's a real kind of like community uh approach almost like a almost like a theatrical approach to filmmaking sure. yeah and um very stage oriented and uh he still i would say meets that definition of auteur because while he's allowing the actors to engage to that level of involvement at the same time he's the one who's making the decisions as to what contributions merit inclusion and which ones don't and i would say suzuki i'm sorry keep going keep going well i would say suzuki at the same you know it's the same i would say that's the same approach that he takes uh, in his filmmaking to a certain degree. I was going to say there's a continuum of control. On one side is like Alfred Hitchcock, who famously said, my actors are just props. Right. Uh, Stanley Kubrick, Steven Spielberg to some extent. On uh, on the opposite pole is someone like my man Altman. Right. 
uh, who was very much about like allowing the movie to take its shape during the time it's being filmed. Like Mike right. Freelick, like you're talking about. By the way, I just saw Secrets and Lives, Secrets and Lies uh, about two weeks ago and just an absolutely stunning movie. There's one scene Great in that film. film in particular, you probably know the scene where I just like, I had to rewind it three times. It's just so, the acting is so powerful. Yeah. Just, just, just actually two scenes that were just incredible. Um, anyway, um, Steven Spielberg's on the control side. Um, uh, I, Suzuki's on the more on the Altman side where you're allowing the improvisation and there's plenty of plenty of places in between. Um, he, he's also clearly influenced strongly by the uh, French new wave. Oh yeah. The same well, kind well, of ethos attached right. to it, right? Yeah. Yeah, it did. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's firmly within that Japanese new wave filmmaking tradition. And we were talking about this before the episode, but it's interesting how he's often by critics overlooked as being one of these kind of like quintessential Japanese new wave uh, cinema filmmakers, interestingly enough. And I think maybe it's because he was kind of working within uh, as opposed to the art cinema, he was working within the B movie production and the and the genre films but yeah. he's still able even though he's within that those confines uh he's still able to interject those sorts of qualities that are commonly ascribed to japanese new wave cinema you know like surrealism or absurdism or avant-garde sort of you know pretensions but he does it in a way that's maybe less overt or maybe less, uh, I don't know, um, obvious than his constituent, you know, than his peers. It's very playful. Yeah, right. He's just having so much fun doing this. He's just, he's obviously making movies that he finds himself to be just, a, this is the kind of movie I want to enjoy. Right. And in that way, you know, there, there just feels like there's so much there's almost a level of self-parody in, in them you know our, our chipmunk cheeked lead character you know it almost feels like a cartoon character but the, yeah, the, right. the things that happen to him are, are incredibly life-threatening right but think of how many times he just has him undressed and looking ridiculous for example right yeah well, I mean, the film that I was watching before we started this episode, Fighting Elegy, uh, you know, which maybe we'll talk about at some point, you know, there's there's fight scenes during the film. And it and it's almost like uh, the the soundtrack that's playing alongside these fight scenes. It might as well be from a Warner Brothers cartoon. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like there's there's a kind of like. Uh, comical quality to his films that's that's really kind of refreshing in a, in, a, in a lot of ways so normally when you come into a yakuza film which both of these films ostensibly are yakuza films uh they're very serious you know and very like you know uh, pretentious and uh these these movies have a levity about them they're 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 they're, they're ostensibly the same subject matter a lot you know the same kind of like 
almost cliched uh, plot lines, but they're they're kind of like fun, you know. They're just not taking themselves. Um, they're they're not taking themselves as quite as so seriously. Yeah, uh, I watched as, an interview with Suzuki from Late yeah. Life, and he, he says, "Yeah, Tokyo Story is just pop art. Mm. It's just bold, a, yeah, bold colors, bright energy. It's like a you know, not even a James Bond movie. It's like a a parody of a James Bond movie in a way. Yes, yeah." Although it gets into its own very unique places too, uh, the the use of the artificial sets in this movie is just so cool. Oh my god! In in specifically in uh, Tokyo Drifter, you know it, it's so constrained by the budget, but he does so much with lighting and and the piano bar setting is just ah, yeah. I've never seen anything like this stuff. And it's just so fun. In a weird way, like the, the movies, it reminds me of things like American in Paris or uh, Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Or, well, uh, how about that? How about that? Uh, Roach for it. How about that fight scene where they literally like tear apart the set, you know? It's, yeah. It's really <laughs> like entire staircases are falling off of the wall. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah the 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 western the the kind of western yeah. bar scene. Yeah, that send up the whole the time feels yeah. like a parody of of you know classic western the classic western scene where they're just fighting in a bar and right. You, you can he, he most of the time you can tell the punches are faked in those in the like the classic oh, yeah. John Wayne movies, but here yeah. it's like in this movie it's deliberately made to look completely fake. It all looks so ridiculous. It, yeah, I mean it's so self consciously fake. It's like so intentionally fake, <laughs> but that's kind of like to throw a bunch now, you know. But at the right. same time, it's so fun. It's kind of the novelty of this film, you know. Um, I just love, I love the the, uh, you know. I spoke about the opening scene that has that wonderful kind of uh, black and white, um, and then there's, you know, he that scene where he looks down. And he sees the toy gun that's, you know, like colored pink. Uh, and I, and I, all I could think of was like Schindler's List. <laughs> that slightly different film, different scene, but uh, yeah, the, on the control people, side, by the way. Well, yeah, and she's walking through all of the violence, you know, and she's that one point of yeah. color. Um, I know that that was what came to me for some reason. Uh, but then there's that. You know, you have the the opening montage of all those scenes of modern Tokyo, um, just like wonderful kind of like compression. You know, you get Kenzo Tange's uh, uh, Olympic Hall, and which was practically brand new at the time they were filming this movie, and and you get all of like it's like all of the new um, um, n novel uh, aspects of Tokyo. There's there's a very intentional um, push on the part of the filmmakers to make this movie seem uh, very contemporary mm -hmm. to the audiences who were watching it at the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that's having that, a James Bond sort of feel to it. Well, yeah, and that also filters into like pop art, you know, that you mentioned before, which is 
which was very concerned with being very contemporary and with the moment, um, the zeitgeist. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it's just such a, it's such a great, um, uh, announcement at, at the start of the film that this is going to be, you know, this is going to be, you know, for the kids essentially. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Another thing I wanted to comment on, just as an aside, and maybe this was for budgetary reasons, but the use and reuse of the same musical, uh, you know, songs and and um, <laughs> melodies and so on throughout the film, it was like this is like right into the danger zone on uh, Top Gun. I mean, how many times can we hear the same? <laughs> Wasn't. Uh... Tetsuya Watari, a big Japanese idol of the time. I believe was, he was. They yeah. were trying to make a yeah. hit out of the song, so kept coming oh, yeah. back over and over again. Oh, I mean, it's every, like, five minutes in the film. Oh, it's, my gosh. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, it got, yeah. It got a little bit of an earworm from that song, too. Yes. Yes. It's hard to forget once you hear it, even if it is in Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> But, but like, I the mean, movie starts of... with this whole like faint towards this whole thing about uh, the Yakuza trying to take over a building and they're only offering 8 million yen, which is incredibly uh, low amount to pay for it. And then right. there's all this kind of ruse back and forth that really is this classic kind of MacGuffin thing where it's just right. like none of this matters at all. None of this really matters at all. It's just like a whole set of experiences to get the plot in motion. Right. Maybe think of Mel Brooks's high anxiety where uh, there's a joke about Mr. McGuffin hasn't checked in yet. Yeah. <laughs> the hotel Mel Brooks goes to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah I, but the look and feel of, I can't decide which one I like more honestly. I, I love I, I think I love Rent to Kill because of that extremely unpredictable feel it has. And this incredibly kinetic feel, but also this kind of feeling that moment to moment, he Suzuki uses the black and white in a way that's so smart and so fun and so interesting. And then these characters all are so, they've got their own edges to them. Right. These are not, these are not flat characters either. And maybe that's part of what makes this so fun as well is um, particularly in Branded to Kill, you know, uh, Goro, our lead character, the hitman, he's got more edges than a Picasso painting. <laughs> There's just so much going on in that guy's head. Yet he's also extremely simple at the same time. He's very right. easy to figure out. But like his woman issues and the whole deal with him sniffing the rice and his pride in his work and his incredible like uh, uh, obsession with being number one, the number one hitman in Tokyo. The right. offense he takes at being told he's the number three hitman in Tokyo at the beginning of the movie and how much <laughs> that fuels him through the rest of the film. Uh, you know, he's like, this character has just got so much going on. And then the women in this movie too, you know, uh, uh, Mami and Mis Misako, uh, both are like these complicated, strange women, especially Misako with her dead animal collection. <laughs> driving around in her convertible with the dead sparrow tied to her rearview mirror and then the the yeah. uh, 
butterflies pinned to the wall in her apartment. It's like, oh yeah, the dead butterflies. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I did say butterflies, didn't I? I hope I did. Um, yeah. It all it's all visual flash and strangeness and silliness in a way, but it all does actually kind of give you a feel for who these people are, at least on a symbolic level. Right. And so, yeah, you it's... know, it's not some empty exercise in style, I guess is what I'm saying. Is like I legitimately by the end was like pretty interested in Goro's ultimate fate. And I feel like what ended up happening to him is kind of a tragedy. Uh, he re remains the uh, the drifter. In both films, what happens to them ultimately is the tragedy. Kind of merging right. the two together again, aren't I? Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of an ambiguous ending in Brandon to Kill. Um, you know, him taking out the love interest, um, by accident, you know, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty intense, yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better word, um, and very sudden, you know, and then that, that kind of like that scene where he just falls out of the ring, it's symbolically speaking like he's out of the game you know mm -hmm. um and then in tokyo drifter uh he's given that opportunity to find some an escape you know and to uh ground himself in a way he'd put all of his devotion into that boss who had no devotion to him whatsoever in a way mm -hmm. double crossed him who left the yakuza life to become a straight businessman and more or less left him behind uh and he's still willing to forego that uh that life to uphold his devotion to this person who's, you know, completely rejected him in a way. Uh, you know, for honor, uh, because of this, you know, that we've, we've spoken about that Japanese um, quality of Giri where you, um, you know, you uh, you act accordingly because um, because of a social uh, requirement, you know, mm -hmm. um, and he, he seems to be upholding that uh, at the end of the film. So, yeah, I mean, there's some <laughs> there's very much a, a tragic element to these films. Yeah. Yeah, and now I've seen enough Japanese films to to realize that as a Ronin, he's gonna he had been a samurai, now he's a right. Ronin. He's gonna be right. wandering the streets as as this reject from society in a way. Right. Right, but it's still it's still carved out of that uh prior um 
devotion to one superior. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm saying it because of the nature of Japanese society, this echoes all the way back to. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Like even in, even in modern times, it's still, yeah, it's, it's like as much as we try to, to modernize ourselves, uh, there's still these, ancient uh behavioral patterns that are extremely hard to break you know that run run below the surface of everything that we you know all of the the surface um uh decoration that we do uh with ourselves that there's this level of human nature that runs so deeply uh, under the surface that we can't, we almost can't avoid it. And, and culturally speaking, the Japanese have, and this is a society that's been around for a very long time, you know, uh, 30, 40,000 years BC. Uh, and while that civilization has evolved, there are elements to it, uh, that reach, you know, as far back as that, if not further. Uh, unlike our society. Yeah, right. Unlike yeah. our society, they venerate the past. Especially right. in the 1960s. Uh, how many samurai films were made at that time? How popular was the genre? Which very all took popular. place yeah. very far, you know, at least 100, if not much more in the past. Uh, this is all fresh in my mind because I recently watched uh, Kobayashi's film Harakiri which is one of the greatest films I've ever seen and you know the, the idea of the samurai basically being set adrift and trying desperately to survive even on the fringes of society of course that's an undercurrent of Seven Samurai too that I'm just now starting to really understand Yeah, uh, and we see that kind of reflected here in Tokyo Drifter too is we yeah. have a man who kind of saw himself as some, as as a samurai, as a serving, because that's what a man of his class does in Japanese society, and he's just manipulated and abused and used, and his only revenge is to really, really to kind of allow himself to continue to drift. But the thing about being a drifter in that society is that to be a drifter is a, to be a tragic figure, right? To be a drifter means you're alone. And, you know, American fiction, especially in the 1970s and 60s, was full of fictions about loner characters and they were heroes. In Japan, they were, you know, losers. They had lost, they had literally lost what made them uh, special. Well, there's this, there's this, undercurrent in Tokyo Drifter social criticism if you will of uh, corporate corruption and we see this in some films you know like like uh, Bad Sleepwell mm-hmm. uh, by Kurosawa um, where loyalty and allegiance are exploited like that tendency in Japanese society of being loyal and allegiant is exploited by, you know, cynically, nihilistically even, by these 
bosses and so on, these higher ups in the uh, corporate structure uh, take advantage of that unquestioning allegiance of their, you know, of the people below them. Uh, so there's there's definitely that that going on in Tokyo Drifter, for sure. Uh, so you know it's interesting. You have this kind of like uh, film which is trying to deconstruct or uh, make light of this yakuza uh, crime film convention. And so it's being irreverent. At the same time, it's making these very like incisive um, social commentaries. And here's where I think it really does become an auteurist film in my mind, because at the same time, it's a commentary on the experience Suzuki finds himself in as well as being perhaps manipulated by the system he's been part of about not having the ability to to become an individual but forced to become this kind of being that's that's taking the orders he's not the people sitting around in the control room he is handed scripts and told to deliver them in 16 days and this is his his life so there's in an interesting way it's a film of rebellion yeah, and it's a rejection of the culture of conformity, which was yeah. which was overt in Japanese cinema at the time. But again, a lot of those restrictions and demands, you know, the same as in American cinema, and I touched on this earlier, uh, weren't as as um, oppressive because of the relative reduced risk given the. Uh, uh, Restrained, restrained budget <laughs> for yeah. these films. So, you know? so it's this, this kind of push pull, right? Oh, exactly. On one hand, he's saying, "I want to have the freedom to create this art," and they're saying, "Well, he's given the freedom, but he's not completely given the freedom he wants to have. He's not doing that next level of film you're talking about." Right. Yeah, and it's you know, you know, the, it, I I think of like. Uh, Orson Welles' great scene in The Third Man where he's talking about, you know, 200 years of warfare produced the Renaissance and 800 years of peace produced the cuckoo clock. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, it's that sense that um, adversity can be very beneficial, you know, uh, to an artist. Um, that 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 kind of tension can can result in great art. So, are you implying in part that this is a post-war film, it's in some way, the commentary on the way that Japanese society had drifted into, uh, drifted into war in a way, uh, without really in a way meaning to? Uh, I'm trying to put the piece together with Tokyo Drifter. We've put this piece together with a lot of the earlier Kurosawa films. Well, I mean, he. You could kind of say that, um, or is this more I mean, like the Doska Den, where it's a comment? You think there's more like a commentary on the? I think Kurosawa's. Yeah. I think Kurosawa's more of a, a realist, 
And I think Suzuki is more of an idealist. Hmm. He's definitely, he definitely, uh, what I know of him definitely has, you know, kind of left-wing political ideologies at work. And I think he, uh, I think he definitely was interested in exposing abuses of power, you, you know, utilizing cinema as a, um, as a platform for exploring these, these concerns. Uh, whereas <clears throat> Kurosawa is more of a humanist in that regard, maybe less political in a way, uh, more philosophical. I always, I always, uh, and I will in, take this to my grave, but I think Kurosawa is, is an existentialist humanist. Uh, you know, he, he, he to me seems to be uh, beyond political, um, you know, uh, restrictions or mm -hmm. definitions. Uh, he, he, he to me seems to be someone who transcends politics into a realm of human nature, which is, you know, beyond political consideration. Uh, whereas Suzuki, yeah. I think is, I, I think Suzuki is still definitely within that kind of like, you know, you could say, again, we could go back to Steve Gerber, for example, who's, who's definitely, uh, you know, liberal left-wing sort of person. So, uh, you know, I think Suzuki is the same way. I think he's, he's definitely, um, looking at things from within a very specific political uh, purview, if you will. That's interesting. So you've seen how many of his movies at this point? Uh, I have to count them. I'd say one, two, three, seven. Okay. I've only seen two, so you're much yeah. more knowledge about him than I do. Well, he, um, so he, you see he this, made you see, 40 you see films this throughout between, his work. Yeah. yeah What's sorry, that? Go ahead. Oh yeah, I mean, you're saying he's uh, made forty certainly. films. Well, and you know, I think uh, like the Ta Taisho um, trilogy, for example, uh, which takes place during the Taisho period, which was between Meiji and Showa, and was a, a period that's generally associated with kind of like liberalization of Japanese politics. Uh, post Meiji, which was obviously interested in the rapid industrialization and westernization of Japanese society, uh, uh, the Taisho period was one of, I, I think the equivalent would be kind of like the Weimar era in Germany or okay. the Edwardian era, era in, uh, in uh, the UK. Um, but yeah, this, this, this kind of like <clears throat> uh, a very kind of like liberal political period um where there was a relative um i wouldn't say acceptance but maybe um patience with uh socialist um 
political ideologies. And then obviously that <clears throat> that eventually developed into the Showa period, which was one of imperialism and right wing Republican you would equivalent the the Japanese equivalent of right wing, you know, repressiveness mm -hmm. and sort of, um, you know, let's put all the socialists in jail kind of thing. <laughs> so so Suzuki seems to me to seem to be well within that kind of like uh, left wing uh, um, stance is politically speaking and I, I would say that tokyo drifter uh its social commentary is definitely reflective of that yeah okay okay we should probably wrap up we're done about <laughs> an hour which is i'm shocked i'm looking down at my clock yeah um what should watch play him next what do you what do you think the the next great film I should see by Suzuki is? Well, I'm really enjoying uh, Fighting Elegy. Um, uh, Gate Gate of Flesh, I believe it's called, is another film that I've seen, which is excellent. Um, the the Taisho trilogy is pretty dense, and um, and I think I said to you once before that maybe not being entirely familiar with that period might be a bit of a um a roadblock to fully appreciating those films but just as uh representations of kind of like pure cinema or art cinema uh they're they're kind of like pinnacles of that in a way um very interesting films uh in their own right so i don't know i wish i wish i'd seen more of of uh suzuki uh before we started doing this but at the same time it's like well uh one of the great things about not knowing about a, a filmmaker is finding out more about them and seeing their films so uh <laughs> this is definitely this is definitely whet my appetite for seeing more of his movies yeah me too these were special films and they really fulfill like a, a certain need for a certain type of film for me i yeah i think in the end i do love genre and i do love a film that can take genre and do something completely different with it uh one of the movies i thought of a lot when i was watching this was alphaville oh yeah godard yeah and how godard deconstructs the science fiction elements of it and gives us a very contemporary for its time French approach to, to the story and the story is it happens and it doesn't necessarily matter how it happens but at the same time it all seems very important and so it's got this fantastic push-pull to it that I see in these two films also so yeah and having heard about uh story of a prostitute for one which i'm very intrigued by i i know taking at the police van which is an earlier one is a supposed to be a great japanese noir film which is uh, something i'm always interested in so well, he oh, yeah, made, i'm excited to watch more yeah i mean he made uh 
by my count, 40 films in about a 12-year period for Nikatsu. Um, oh, I want to say, I just found this quote and I want to share it before we sign off. Um, yeah. AV Club's Noah Murray um, made a comment about about Suzuki that I think applies really well here. Uh, Suzuki's approach is a testament to, to how artists pumping a quickly quickie exploitation product can often work in truths about their times prestige filmmakers can't. That's pretty, that's a really great way of, of thinking of it. Yeah. You know, it's, I, yeah, we were talking, well, yeah, maybe, maybe that this is where I should wrap it up. Like talking about Steve Gerber's comics. Part of what I love about Gerber is they're delivered so quickly and so much of their time yeah, it becomes it almost drags along his personality with them. Almost drags along like his approach to the world, and it's almost because he works so because uh, Suzuki worked so quickly, it can't help but be autobiographical. Where if you take it longer, it loses the autobiographical feel to it. Yeah, you have to dig deeper. Maybe I mean, I don't know. You, you, there's a lot of autobiography in something like Barry Lyndon, but took so long to create you have to think about it in different ways this film these two films especially really just kind of almost accidentally show his approach to the world and, and the rot at the center of japanese society he was seeing there yeah another interesting parallel between gerber and suzuki is that they were extremely prolific at one point in, <laughs> in their lives uh yeah. You know, for about a 12 year period, he was producing something like three and a half films a year, Suzuki. Uh, and then Gerber, was he, you know, at, at his height at Marvel Comics, he was putting out three or four, maybe five titles a month. Four to five per month. Yeah. Four to five. Over like month. a four or five year period. I mean, that's an incredible amount of work. And uh, and it's all it's all kind of a piece, you know. In a way, it all kind of blends together. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to contemplate uh, those similarities. And there's something to be said for having that frenetic pace of activity that it kind of like removes some of the um, self-consciousness to it. And it becomes kind of like a more direct conduit to the creator's subconscious in a way, because it's just so, there's just such an outpouring of, of creativity that it, they don't have time to self-edit, you know, that you're just getting like the, pure artistry in a way and so there's something lost in the fact that you don't it doesn't all tie together but the genius is that it doesn't tie together in some ways it just works right. so well as something that's just this this pure distillation of a of a thought at the moment yeah it, it's you know and it's created it's culture is created to be thrown away yeah yeah right right uh 1967 there wasn't even vhs tapes 
Maybe I, these movies would eventually be shown on Japanese TV, but really, they were disposable. Yeah. They're as disposable as the episode of some random sitcom. Right. 